Chapter 12, Part 2 of More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice by George Prentice. Chapter 12, Part 2. Her husband called to Chicago. Lines on going to Dorset. Letters to young friends on the Christian life. Narrow escape from death. Feeling on returning to town. Her praying circle. The Chicago fire. The true art of living. God, our only safe teacher. An easily besetting sin. Counsels to young friends. Letters. Mrs. Prentice's letters relating to her husband's call to Chicago require perhaps an explanatory word. She had some very pleasant associations with Chicago. It was the home of a brother and sister-in-law to whom she was deeply attached and of other dear relatives. There, stepping heavenward had first appeared and many unknown friends, grateful for the good it had done them, were eager to form her acquaintance and bid her welcome to the great city of the interior. And yet the thought of removing there filled her with the utmost distress. Had her husband's call been to some distant post in the field of foreign missions, her language on the subject could hardly have been stronger. But this language in reality expresses simply the depth of her devotion to her church and her friends in New York her morbid shyness and shrinking from the presence of strangers, and, especially, her vivid sense of physical inability to make the change without risking the loss of what health and power of sleep still remained to her. Misgiving on this last point caused her husband to hesitate long before accepting the call, and to feel in after years that his decision to accept it, although conscientiously made, had been a grave mistake. To Mrs. Condict, New York, June the 3rd, 1871. I knew that you would rather hear from me than through the papers the fact that Mr. Prentice has been once more unanimously elected by the General Assembly to the Chicago Professorship. He has come home greatly perplexed as to his duty and prepared to do it at any reasonable cost if he can only find out what it is. We built our Dorset house not as a mere luxury, but with the hope that the easy summer there would so build up our health as to increase and prolong our usefulness. But going to Chicago would deprive us of that, besides cutting us off from all our friends. But we want to know no will but God's in this question, and I am sure you and Miss Kay will join us in the prayer that we may not so much as suggest to him what path he will lead us into. The experience of the past winter would impress upon me the fact that place and position have next to nothing to do with happiness, that we can be wretched in a palace, radiant in a dungeon. Mr. P. said yesterday that it broke his heart to hear me talk of giving up Dorset. But perhaps this heartbreaking is exactly what we need to remind us of what for many years we never had a chance to forget, that we are pilgrims and strangers on the earth. 
Two lines of my own keep running in my head. O oh, foolish heart, O oh, faithless heart, O oh, heart on ruin bent, Build not with too much care thy nest, Thou art in banishment. I have seen the time when the sense of being a pilgrim and a stranger was very sweet, and God can sweeten whatever he does to us. So, though perplexed, we are not in despair, and if we feel that we are this summer living in a tent that may soon blow down, it is just what you are doing, and in this point we shall have fellowship. I am sure it is good for us to have God take up the rod, even if he lays it down again without inflicting a blow. I know we are going to pray till light comes. I feel very differently about it from what I did last summer. The mental conflicts of the past winter have created a good deal of indifference to everything. Without conscious union and nearness to my Saviour, I can't be happy anywhere. For years he has been the meaning of everything, and when he only seems gone, I know it is only seeming, I don't much care where I am. I am just trying to be patient till he makes Satan let go of me. Excuse this selfish letter, and write me one just as bad. On the 7th of June she went to Dorset with her husband and the younger children. The following lines, found among her papers, will show in what temper of mind she went. It is worth noting that they were written on Monday, and express a weekday not merely a passing Sabbath feeling. Once more at home, once more at home, for what, dear Lord, I pray, to seek enjoyment, please myself, make life a summer's day? I shrink, I shudder at the thought, for what is home to me, when sin and self enchain my heart, and keep it far from thee? There is but one abiding joy, nor place that joy can give, it is thy presence that makes home, that makes it life to live. The presence I invoke, naught else I venture to entreat. I long to see thee, hear thy voice, to sit at thy dear feet. To a young friend, Dorset, June the 12th, 1871. I trust it is an omen of good that the first letters I have received since coming here this summer have been full of the themes I love best. I was much struck with the sentence you quote, they cannot go back, etc., and believe it is true of you. Being absorbed in divine things will not make you selfish. You will be astonished to find how loving you will gradually grow toward everybody, how interested in their interests, how happy in their happiness. And if you want to work for Christ, and the more you love him, the more you will long for it. That work will come to you in all sorts of ways. I do not believe much in duty work. I think that work that tells is the spontaneous expression of the love within. Perhaps you have not been sick enough yourself to be skilful in a sick room. Perhaps your time for that sort of work hasn't come. I meant to get you a little book called The Life of Faith. In fact, I went downtown on purpose to get it and passed the Episcopal Sunday School Union inadvertently. I think that little book teaches how everything we do may be done for Christ and I know by what little experience I have had of it 
that it is a blessed, thrice-blessed way to live. A great deal is meant by the cup of cold water, and few of us women have great deeds to perform, and we must unite ourselves to him by little ones. The life of constant self-discipline God requires is a happy one. You and I, and others like us, find a wild, absorbing joy in loving and being loved. But sweet, abiding peace is the fruit of steady check on affections that must be tamed and kept under. Is this consistent with what I have just said about growing more loving as we grow more Christ-like? Yes, it is, for that love is absolutely unselfish. It gives much and asks nothing, and there is nothing restless about it. I have been very hard at work ever since I came here, with my darling M as my constant, joyous comrade. We have been busy with our flower beds, sewing and transplanting, and half the china closet has tumbled out of doors to serve as protection from the sun. Mr Prentice says we do the work of three days in one, which is true, for we certainly have performed great feats. The night we got here we found the house lighted up and the dining table covered with good things. People seem glad to see us back. I don't know which of my Dorset titles would strike you as most appropriate. One man calls me a branch, another a child of nature, and another Mr Prentice's woman, with a consoling reflection that I shan't rust out. To Mrs Smith, Dorset, August the 6th, 1871. I don't know when I have written so few letters as I have this summer. My right hand has forgot its cunning under the paralysis, under which my heart has suffered, and which is now beginning to affect my health quite unfavourably. It seems as if body and soul, joints and marrow, were rudely separating. Poor George is half distracted with the weight of the questions concerning Chicago, and I think almost anything would be better than this crucifying suspense. But I try not to make a fuss. Mrs. D. can tell you that I have said to her many times during the last few years that, according to the ordinary run of life, things would not long remain with us as they were. They were too good to last. I have read and re-read spiritual dislodgments and remember it well. I certainly wish for such dislodgments in me and mine, if we need them. George has got hold of a book of A's which delights him, Letters of William von Humboldt. I suppose you recommended it to her. You must make your plans to come here this summer. I don't seem fully to have a thing till you've seen it. To Mrs. Humphrey, Dorset, August the 8th, 1871. It took you a good while to answer my last letter, and I have been equally lazy about writing since yours strayed this way. Letter writing has always been a resource and a pastime to me, a refuge in headachy and rainy days, and a tiny way to give pleasure or do good when other paths were hedged up. But this summer I have left almost everybody in the lurch, partly from being more or less unwell and out of spirits, partly because the Chicago question, remaining unsettled, has been such a damper that I hadn't much heart to speak either of it or of anything else. We are perplexed beyond measure what to do. 
the thought of leaving my minister and having him turn into a professor agonizes me on the other hand who knows but he needs the rest that change of labour and the five months vacation would give him his chief worry is the effect the attending funerals all the time has already had on my health one day i part with and bury in imagination now this friend now that and this mournful work does not sharpen one's appetite or invigorate one's frame i don't know how we've stood the conflict and it seems rather selfish to allude to my part of it but women live more in their friendships than men do and the thought of tearing up all our roots is more painful to me than to my husband and he will not lose what i must lose in addition and as i have said before my minister which is the hardest part of it i want you to know what straits we are in in the hope that you and yours will be stirred up to pray that we may make no mistake but go or stay as the lord would have us we have found our little home a nice refuge for us in the storm mr p says he should have gone distracted in a boarding-house I do not envy you the Conway crowd, but I fancy it is a good region for collecting mosses and light treasures. I think the prettiest thing in our house is a flattish bracket fastened to the wall and filled with flowers. It looks like a graceful meandering letter S and is one of the idols I bow down to. I have holiness through faith. The first time I read it at Mr. R's request, I said I believed every word of it. But this summer, reading it in a different mood, it puzzles me. The idea is plausible. If God tells us to be holy, as he certainly does, is it not for him to provide the way for our being so, and is it likely he needs our whole lives before he can accomplish his own desire? I talked with Mr. Prentice about it, and at first he rejected the thought of holiness through faith, but last night we got upon the subject again, and he was interested in some sentences I read to him and said he must examine the book. When are you coming to spend that week in Dorset? Love to each and all. To a young friend, Cowan Fells, September the ninth, eighteen seventy one. I have had many letters to write today, for today our fate is sealed and we are to go, but I must say a few words to you before going to bed for I want to tell you how very glad I am that you have been enabled to take a step which will, I am sure, lead the way to other steps, increase your holiness, your usefulness, and your happiness. May God bless you in this attempt to honour him and open out before you new fields wherein to glorify and please him. This has not been a sorrowful day to me. I hope I am offering to a patient God a patient heart. I do not want to make the worst of the sacrifice he requires, or to fancy I am only to be happy on my own conditions. He has been most of the time for years, the spring of all my joys, the life of my delights. Where he is, I want to be. Where he bids me go, I want to go, and to go in courage and faith. Anything is better than too strong cleaving to this world. As I was situated in New York, I lacked not a single earthly blessing. I had a delightful home, freedom from care, 
and a circle of friends whom I loved with all my heart, and who loved me in a way to satisfy even my rapacity. Only one thing was wanting to my perfect felicity, a heart absolutely holy. And was I likely to get that when my earthly cup was so full? At any rate, I am content. Now and then, as the reality of this coming separation overwhelms me, I feel a spasm of pain at my heart. I don't suppose we are expected to cease to be human beings or to lose our sensibilities. But if my Lord and Master will go with me and keeps on making me more and more like himself, I can be happy anywhere and under any conditions or be made content not to be happy. All of this is of little consequence in itself, but perhaps it may make me more of a blessing to others, which, next to personal holiness, is the only thing to be sought very earnestly. As to my relation to you, he who brought you under my wing for a season has something better for you in store. That's his way. And wherever I am, if it is his will and his spirit dictates the prayer, I shall pray for you and that is the best service one soul can render another. About this time, she and her husband had an almost miraculous escape from instant death. They had been calling upon friends in East Dorset and were returning home. Not far from that village is a very dangerous railroad crossing, and, as the sight or sound of cars so affrighted Coco as to render him uncontrollable, Special pains had been taken not to arrive at the spot while a train was due. But just as they reached it, an irregular train, whose approach was masked behind high bushes, came rushing along unannounced, and had they been only a few seconds later, would have crushed them to atoms. So severe was the shock, and so vivid the sense of a providential escape, that scarcely a word was spoken during the drive home. The next morning she gave her husband a very interesting account of the thoughts that, like lightning, flashed upon her mind while feeling herself in the jaws of death. They related exclusively to her children, how they would receive the news and what would become of them. Late in September she returned to town, still oppressed by the thought of going to Chicago. In a letter to Mrs. Condict, dated October the 2nd, she writes, We got home on Friday night, and very early on Saturday were settled down into the old routine. But how different everything is! At church, tearful, clouded faces. At home, warm-hearted friends looking upon us as for the last time. It is all right. I would not venture to change it if I could. But it is hard. At times it seems as if my heart would literally break to pieces, but we are mercifully kept from realising our sorrows all the time. The waves dash in and almost overwhelm, but then they sweep back and are stayed by an almighty, kind hand. It is like tearing off a new limb to leave our dear prayer meeting. Next to my closet, it has been to me the sweetest spot on earth. I never expect to find such another. To another friend, she writes a day or two later, My heart fairly collapses at times at the thought of tearing myself away from those whom Christian ties have made dearer to me than my kindred after the flesh. 
and then comes the precious privilege and relief of telling my yet dearer and better friend all about it and the sweet peace begotten of yielding my will to his i want to be of all the use and comfort to you and to the other dear ones he will let me be during these few months do pray for me that i may so live christ as to bear others along with me on a resistless tide those lines you copied for me are a great comfort rather walking with him in faith than walking alone in the light of the little praying circle alluded to in her letter to mrs c one of its members writes it was unique even among meetings of its own class held in an upper chamber never largely attended and sometimes only by the two or three it was almost unknown except to the few who regarded it as among their chiefest religious privileges all the other members would gladly have had mrs prentice assume its entire leadership but she assumed nothing and was no doubt quite unconscious as to how large an extent she was the life and soul of the meeting in the familiar conversation of the hour nothing fell from her lips but such simple words as coming from a glowing heart strengthened and deepened the spiritual life of all who heard them she had in a degree i never knew equalled the gift of leading the devotions of others but there was not the slightest approach to performance in her prayers she abhorred the very thought of it those who knelt with her can never forget the pure devotion which breathed itself forth in simple exquisite language but it was something beyond the power of description another member of the circle writes her prayers were so simple so earnest so childlike we all felt we were in the very presence of our loving father one thing especially always impressed me during that sacred hour it was her quietness of manner she was very cordial and affectionate in her greetings with each one as we assembled and then a holy awe a solemn hush came over her spirit and she seemed like one who saw the lord oh how we all miss her there is never a meeting but we keep her in remembrance and talk together lovingly about her to a friend october the 21st 1871 mr prentice sent in his resignation last evening and the church refused unanimously to let him go praise god from whom all blessings flow penetrated the walls of the parsonage as they sang it when the decision was made and so we knew our fate before a whole parlourful rushed in to shake hands kiss and congratulate you would have been delighted had you been here prof smith who took strong ground in favour of his going takes just as strong ground in favour of his staying i feel that all this is the result of prayer i never got any light on the chicago question when i prayed about it never could see that it was our duty to go but i yielded my judgment and my will because my husband thought that he must go i think our very reluctance to it made us shrink from evading it we were so afraid of opposing god's will now the matter is taken out of our hands and we have only to resume our work here god grant that this baptism of fire may purge and purify us and prepare us to be a great blessing to the church 
It is a most awe-inspiring providence, God's burning us out of Chicago, and we feel like putting our shoes from off our feet and adoring him in silence. Pray that the lessons we have been learning through so many trying months may help us to be helping hands to those who may pass through similar straits. One of my brothers was burnt out, and his own and his wife's letters drew tears even down to the kitchen. For two days and a night they lost their baby, five months old, in addition to all the other horrors. But they found refuge with a dear cousin who has filled his house to overflowing. I may have spoken of this cousin to you. He has a foundling home on Muller's trust system. Before taking leave of the call to Chicago, a word should be added to what she says concerning it in her letters. The prospect of her husband's accepting the call rendered the summer a very trying one, but it was far from being all gloom. She had a marvellous power of extracting amusement out of the most untoward situation. In 1843, she wrote from Richmond, referring to Mr. Persico's troubles. I never spent such melancholy weeks in my life. In the midst of it, however, I made fun for the rest, as I believe I should do in a dungeon. It was so in the present case. She relieved the weariness of many an anxious hour by making fun for the rest. As an illustration, one evening at Dorset, while sitting at the parlour table with her children and a young friend who was visiting her, she seized a pencil and wrote for their entertainment a ludicrous version of the Chicago affair in two parts. The paper, which was preserved by her young friend, illustrates also another trait which she thus describes at the close of a frolicsome letter to Miss E. A. Warner. It is one of the peculiarities of this woman that she usually carries on when she wants to hide her feelings. Part one begins thus. Where are the prentices? Gone to Chicago. Gone bag and baggage, the whole crew and cargo. Well, they would go. Now let's talk them over and see what compensation we can discover. They are all talked over. And then in part two, the scene changes to Chicago itself. Sing a song of sixpence, a pocket full of rye. Hear the tribe of prentices just a-going by. Dr. Prentice he, Mrs. Prentice she, and a lot of young ones that all begin with P. Well, let us view them with our eyes, and then begin to criticise. And first the doctor. What of him? The doctor, having been fully discussed, the criticism proceeds. Now for his wife. Well, who would guess? She had set up as authoress. Why, she looks just like all of us, instead of being in a muss like other literary folks. They say she likes her little jokes, as well as those who've less to say, of stepping on the heavenward way. Mrs. P. having been disposed of. Next comes Miss P. How she will make the hearts of all the students quake. She'll wind them round her fingers' ends and find in them one hundred friends. They'll sit on benches in a row, and watch her come, and watch her go. But they'll be safe, the precious rogues, since she don't care for theologues. The other children next pass in review, and the whole closes with the remark, Time and time only will make clear why the poor geese came cackling here. To a young friend, New York, November 1871. 
My heart is as young and fresh as any girl's, and I am almost as prone to make idols out of those I love as I ever was. And this is inconsistent with the devotion owed to God. I do not mean that I really love anybody better than I do him, but that human friendships tempt me. This easily besetting sin of mine has cost me more anguish than tongue can tell, and I deeply feel the need of more love to Christ because of my earthly tendencies. I know I would sacrifice every friend to Christ, but I am not always disentangled. How strange this is! How passing strange! In a religious way, I find myself much better off here than at Dorset. But there is yet something apparently far off, unattained and dim, that I once thought I had caught by the wing and enjoyed for a season, but which has flown away. I am afraid I am one who has got to be a religious enthusiast, or else dissatisfied and restless. When I give way to an impulse to the first, I care for nothing worldly and am at peace. But I am unfitted for daily life, for secular talk and reading. Is it so with you? Does it run in our blood? I do long and pray for more light, and I will pray for more love, cost what it may. Sometimes I long to get to heaven, where I shall not have to be curbing my heart with bit and bridle, and can be as loving as I want to be, as I am. To a young friend abroad, New York, December the 8th, 1871. There never will come a time in my life when I shall not need all my Christian friends can do for me in the way of prayer. I am glad you are making such special effort to oppose the icebergs of foreign life. God will meet and bless you in it. Let us, if need be, forsake all others to cleave only unto him. I don't know of any real misery except coldness between myself and him. I feel warm and tender sympathy with you in all your struggles, temptations, joys, hopes and fears. As you grow older, you will settle more. Your troubles, your ups and downs, belong chiefly to your youth. Yes, you are right in saying that Mr. P could go through mental conflicts in silence. He does not pine for sympathy, as you and I do. You and I are like David, although I forget, at the moment, what he said happened to him when he kept silence. On the whole, I don't think he said anything. I think the proper attitude to take when restless and lonesome and homesick for want of God's sensible presence is just what we take when we are missing earthly friends for whom we yearn and whose letters, though better than nothing, do not half feed our hungry hearts or fill our longing arms. And that attitude is patient waiting. We are such many-sided creatures that I do not doubt you are getting pleasure and profit out of this European trip, although it is alloyed by so much mental suffering. But such is life. It has in it nothing perfect, nothing ideal. And this conviction, deepened every now and then by some new experience, tosses me anew, again and again, back onto that rock of ages that ever stands sure and steadfast and on whom our feet may rest. It is well to have the waves and billows of temptation beat upon us, if only to magnify this rock and teach us what a refuge he is. 
I went last night with Mr. Prentice and most of the children to hear the freed men and women in a concert at Steinway Hall. It was packed with a brilliant, delighted audience, and it was most interesting to see these young people, simple, dignified, earnest, full of love to Christ, and preparing by education to work for him. They sang, Keep Me From Sinking Down, most sweetly and touchingly. I see you have the blues as I used to do at your age, and hope you will outgrow them as I have done. I suffer without being depressed, in the sense in which I used to be. It is hard to make the distinction, but I am sure there is one. I do not know how far this change has come to me as a happy wife and mother, or how far it is religious. Aunt Jane's Hero was published in 1871. It is hardly inferior to stepping heavenward in its pictures of life and character, or in the wisdom of its teaching. The object of the book is to depict a home whose happiness flows from the living rock, Christ Jesus. It protests also against the extravagance and other evils of the times, which tend to check the growth of such homes, and aims to show that there are still treasures of love and peace on earth that may be bought without money and without price. End of chapter 7, part 2